0: There's a, there's a school of thought in psychology and some studies that back it up that, that show that uncertainty's not all bad, that in fact we humans crave uncertainty. It's why we, we want to read a good uh, mystery. You know, if you knew what was going to happen at the end of the book, you really wouldn't get the same pleasure out of it.
1: To Deviate with Rolf Potts, today I talk with travel writer Eric Weiner, whose 2008 book The Geography of Bliss is being made into a docu-series on Peacock TV. The new show stars Rain Wilson, who's perhaps best known for playing Dwight Schrute on the TV show The Office. I actually quote The Geography of Bliss and other Eric Weiner books in four different places of my new book The Vagabond's Way. If you're familiar with the book, you'll know that it's organized as a series of daily readings. You can read the book in one sitting or at any time of the year, of course, but by design, it takes the reader through one year of meditations and reflections. And as this is early January, it makes a good time to start the book. In today's episode, Eric and I don't discuss a specific theme or section from the book. We just sit down in a tea shop in Washington, D.C. and casually talk about travel for an hour. Along the way, we talk about going back to places we've been to before and what it's like to experience those places in a new way. We talk about the difference between happiness and flourishing in life and how happiness is more relational than it is personal. We talk about how both extreme poverty and extreme comfort can get in the way of meaningful travel experiences and how some luxury hotels can become maximum comfort prisons. Again, we start when I turn on the digital recorder in a tea shop that can at times be a bit noisy. The conversation picks up just after we've been talking about travelers' tendency to over-idealize how things were better in a place 15 or 20 years earlier. Let's listen in.
0: Does everyone, anyone ever say you're here at the right time? You know, boy, you're really... Good thing you weren't here 15 years ago. This place was it was a shithole, you know? uh, uh,
1: Yeah, well, I think... Um, all you can really do is just assume that this is the best time like now is the now is the best time because it's the only time you have right
0: right the best time to be in a place is the time you're there <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah because it's it's like well how many 15 to 20 year periods do you go back because like when um when the railroads came through people said oh well yeah, yeah. sure it's convenient but you used yeah, to yeah. You, you used to walk from city to city and, right. and now you're you're completely missing everything between these two cities.
0: Yeah, no, and they considered um, the early train travel, we're talking, you know, when they were going 15, 20 miles an hour, it's just crazy fast. Like everything was, the scenery was a blur, people complained, and now we ride trains because it's a nostalgic thing to do. Like I took a train from here to Portland, Oregon, and that was like a nostalgia trip, slow down. But when they first came out, it was like, whoa, trains way too fast so i don't know what the lesson there is other than everything is all relative and um you know when you can when you can fly from new york to tokyo in three hours if these supersonic jets take off i think people will be nostalgic for the 14-hour flight Mm. because i like long flights and i think 14 hours in a reasonable amount of comfort is the right amount of time you gotta, you gotta earn your destination a little bit. So I've had my head in the 18th century for a while because I'm working on a book on Benjamin Franklin, and he crossed the Atlantic eight times in his life, which was a lot, you know? Considering it took, do you know how long it took? How long do you think it took? Was <laughs> it
1: 30 days?
0: Or is Roughly, it yeah, okay. that's, that's pretty close. Okay. Um, a little faster, um, I forget which way. It had to do with the Gulf Stream. Hmm. Um, well, he he, Franklin charted the Gulf Stream. He didn't discover it, but he charted it and wrote about it, and um, yeah, discovered that one way was faster than the other. And you know, sometimes it would take two months. A fast trip was like twenty-four days. It was okay. like the fastest you could do it. So you think about it. It was you. you there was no boat lag. There was no jet lag. Mm. You know, and you just. Um, you know, you got to know your passengers, for better or worse, and you felt like you were going somewhere. Um, and sometimes you didn't make it, too. It was that.
1: Well, 100 years ago, you were still doing that. It may have been a little faster, but nobody was flying across oceans.
0: Yeah, what well, was it, about a week across the Atlantic, probably? Was it
1: how much it was? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, think, I mean, you can do it now in the Queen Mary. And a friend of mine did it. It's five days to get oh. from New York to Southampton. You
1: know. Have you ever spent any extended
0: period of time on a boat? The a <sighs> only cruise I took was a weird one to North Korea. Oh. Um, but um, <laughs> that was, uh, it was literally on the love boat. The actual boat used in the filming had been hired or bought by a South Korean firm that was running trips to this part of North Korea when there was a brief detente between North and South. It's the only cruise I've ever taken. My wife refuses to, to go on them. Uh, she finds the thought of it intolerable, so. I'd like to, to do one of these, like, cargo ship cruises. Do you know about these?
1: No. Where you're like, they're
0: cargo ships. Ba- they're basically cargo ships, but they rent oh, out, caroches. like, like oh, no, 10 I, rooms, maybe 12, you know, for, for t- travelers.
1: I've actually done that. You have? Yeah, I thought you said, Carter, like, I, I thought. No, cargo. You, right. I thought you, car- Carter, like the president. No. Um, yeah in uh 20 years like 22 years ago i took a cargo ship from the suez to bombay wow uh and it was amazing it was really weird and uh how
0: many passengers like you were on board? one
1: i was the only one you were the only one yeah yeah and and so it wasn't there was just sort of this office front in london that i contacted by a dial-up email and yeah. they got me a place on this ship and i think um Civilian um, passengers are sort of interesting for the crew because it's just a diversion, right? Um, and so I got to know the, the the bosun, who's this crazy German tough guy, and um, yeah, I got to know all the officers, and I hung out with the deckhands. And
0: what's that term you use, bosun?
1: Um, is it bosun?
0: What is that? No, I, I uh, don't. It was the
1: boatswain. Um, he's oh, he, boatswain. He's sort of. Okay. If it was the military, he would be the ranking enlisted man. Okay. Um, and so. You know whereas your commissioned officers have a certain bit of administrative duty right he's like the boss of all the people who are um, cleaning decks and running cranes and stuff like that
0: gotcha well i had a friend when i was living in india who was in the indian merchant marine basically mm-hmm. and he would go on these trips for probably he could have been on your boat for all i know and for weeks and months at a time
1: the highest ranking officers on my cruise ship were indian was, yeah. um, and the, the captain was was great. He was a big reader. Um, I was reading uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Yes. I was reading T. E. Lawrence at the time, and he was he saw that and he just wanted to talk about books the whole time. Uh, and then there were uh, some Ukrainians, and all the deckhands were Mel- uh, Filipino or uh, from the Maldives. Right. And there may have been a couple of other nationalities. How was, long
0: did it take you to get from Suez to Bombay? I, I think it was
1: five days.
0: That's all. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, we stopped in Jeddah, Uh, I didn't get off the ship. Uh, I got got off on the, I didn't get stamped into Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, And then we went across the Indian Ocean to Bombay. Uh, And it was, gosh, I should do a a podcast or write about that or something. Yeah.
0: There was no swimming pool on board. There was a swimming pool. There was?
1: (laughs) It was, they would pump seawater into this big swimming pool, but it wasn't like a recreational swimming pool. It was just like amid the stacks of crates, there's this place where you could swim, and I was into fitness at the time, and so I would use the gym every day. I I was pretty pretty ripped when I got off because there was nothing to do except read books and work out.
0: There was a gym and, uh, okay, was was there a bar on board? Well, no, (laughs) but everybody had booze, all right. and there
1: was a weird amount of porno, actually. Like, there was a, um, a VHS library underneath where I'd hang out with the deckhands and stuff. And I opened up the library and it was was like 75% (laughs) pornography.
0: Um, And 25% Merchant Ivory Films. (laughs) Right,
1: right. (laughs) It was just like, I I just had this window into the the cultural uh, world of the people who lived on the ship. Um, Yeah, so there there wasn't a bar, but everybody had really fancy booze because they had duty-free alcohol. Right. Um, And maybe not the deckhands, but all the officers and then the bosun, he had Johnny Walker Red Label. Actually, just this conversation, I think will make it for a good episode, just sort of informal talking about travel. Right. And I'm curious to know about your most recent trip, because it was your, I also had my first post-COVID international travels. Right. And so, you. it sounds like you covered some ground you've been to already, because um, Bhutan figures in.
0: This is my new philosophy of travel, is not trying to check off new places, but to go back to places I've been. I mean, if I was, you know, had a chance to go some to a new country, I I would probably do it. But I find it more satisfying to return to places I've traveled to or places I've lived, like in India, because they're familiar yet different at the same time, and you sort of know your way around. But enough has changed. Um, I think the only exception to that rule would probably be China, that has changed so rapidly in the last thirty years that. I've got friends who are old China hands who say they, they just can't find their way around like, the streets of Shanghai because everything's changed completely. Hmm. But that's not the case in, in India. It's still recognizable.
1: It's been 20 years since I've been there. 20, yeah, that was that year, the year 2000. So I suspect it would be different to my eyes. Um,
0: well, I mean, first, I think uh, like when I got to Delhi this time, the first thing that struck me was the airport was was new and modern, and I remember this this pretty rinky-dink airport. You know, this was back in 1993 when I first landed there, and I distinctly remember a smell at the airport. And because I fell in love with India, I fell in love with this smell. Later, I found that it was the smell of pollution, mm. but it still smells sweet and nice to me. <laughs> um, and the smell is much fainter now in the airports. It's when it looks like you know it looks like almost looks like every airport in the world, and I got a little depressed, um, happy for the Indians, they have a modern airport now that doesn't smell as much but but kind of sad of the the sameness of the world. But then I got to my guest house and went to see friends, Indian friends in in neighborhoods that are not up and coming, not being um, gentrified, and I realized that India really has not changed. Um, there's still the chaos on the streets. Um, there's still life just lived publicly as it is. Um, and so yeah, I came away with the impression that India was still India for better or worse.
1: I think it was in one of your books that you, you, you said, or maybe quoted somebody saying, to understand India, just take, walk yeah, slowly in a 360-degree arc
0: just stand on a street corner and turn around 360 degrees and you will see the best and worst of humanity in that just one sweep, you know. You'll, you'll see a, a beggar being abused by passers-by, and you'll see, you know, somebody helping someone. Um, and just the extremes are what, what drew me, you know. Growing up in suburban Baltimore, we didn't have so many extremes. Um, and uh, it's still true today of India. You stand on any corner, turn around 360 degrees, and you will see the best and worst of of humanity.
1: Yeah, I was. I said after I went to India that you, in one day, you can see the most beautiful thing you've seen in your life and the most horrific thing you've seen in your life.
0: Right. In one hour, probably, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depending where you are.
1: Yeah. I, I'm curious. Going back to this place again and again. One. Um, that I quote you in in the new book, and I think it's from one of your newsletter email newsletters, mm. and not your books. It says it says that travel is one of the few activities we engage in, not knowing the outcome and reveling in that uncertainty. Nothing is more forgettable than the trip that goes, goes exactly as planned. Right. How does this figure into going back to places? I, can, can you sow a bit of the un, a bit of uncertainty and unpredictability into return trips?
0: Um, yes, by not over planning. <laughs> um, it's the over planned trip um of course those don't always go as planned but it's um it's just leading leaving slack in your travel and that slack often takes the form of time so i my philosophy is you figure out how long you need in a place generously and then you add 20 30 percent just Mm. automatically and i never regret that um and uh it's that extra slack of time that allows you, things to go wrong and then for them to right themselves. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, uncertainty. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about this during the, in the beginning of COVID, suggesting that really what, what we found so disturbing about the pandemic was not just the suffering, which was bad enough, but the uncertainty. We didn't know when it was gonna end. We didn't know how bad it was gonna get. But there's a, there's a school of thought in psychology and some studies that back it up that, that show that uncertainty is not all bad, that in fact we humans crave uncertainty. It's why we want to read a good uh, mystery. You know, if you knew what was going to happen at the end of the book, you really wouldn't get the same pleasure out of it. Um, and there's studies that show that if, you, if something good happens to you by surprise, you get more enjoyment from it, more happiness derived from it than if it's uh, a plan, something good. So um, there are positive sides to uncertainty. And I think ideally travel is about the positive side of uncertainty, you know, things going awry, um, things not going according to plan, um, or just not knowing what you'll find in a place. And this is one of the challenges with TripAdvisor and Google Map is, um, it sort of takes some of the uncertainty away from travel. It used to be, if you were a traveler going to Borneo or wherever, there were maybe one or two accounts of the place in your language, um, and you didn't know what to expect. But now, with every, the world so well mapped, we, we have these expectations often when we go somewhere.
1: We also have uh, this phone in our pocket, which does things that would boggle the mind of my own mind as a 29-year-old traveler as opposed to a 52-year-old traveler.
0: Right. Um, it, and the, the, the problem or the risk is that it takes you out of where you are. And anything that takes you out of where you are um, is bad, I think, from a traveler's point of view. Um, <coughs> I mean, I remember... The first time I got to India, I felt like I was in an alternate reality, uh, in a good way. And, you know, I think expatriates like myself living in India at the time we had a saying that when you're outside of India, you can't imagine being in India. And when you're in India, you can't imagine being anywhere else. Um, meaning that it was a big enough place that it had its own fast food restaurants, but they weren't McDonald's yet. They were a chain called Narula's um and there were very few chain hotels or chain restaurants and so there was nothing recognizable from life back home there were no etms there were no cell phones there was not much of an internet at all at that time so you were you were there you were just there and you know that's i think travel at its best
1: i agree and that's why um just the all-inclusive Compassing, all-inclusive aspect of the smartphone um, gives me pause sometimes because you have your your compass is on there, your GPS is on there, your your full music library, all sorts of recommendations, your phone, uh, your an entertainment system. Uh, somebody could be listening to this podcast episode while walking across an interesting city. Right, are if, we
0: just starting to sound like old guys? Yes. <laughs> you know, this is
1: well, we are, but then, but that's like so much i think of what as we were coming of age you and india and me and Thailand or korea and yeah. thailand and some other places right. that are important to me so much of what it was truly memorable were those surprises and so this is a total old man conversation but <laughs> it feels important because yeah. it's like well what is there anything that falls outside of the purview of the phone
0: well there there are positive attributes to the phone um you know it will Let's not over-romanticize pre-smartphone travel. You know, you would end up in maybe a terrible, divy hotel <coughs> with bedbugs and, and mosquitoes and that you never would have gone to if you were warned by people in TripAdvisor, whatever you do, don't go to that hotel. Um, you're able, with this thing in your pocket, to take quite amazing photographs um, that you can share with the world. Um, you're able to... Um, connect with friends who may be in town that you wouldn't know about otherwise. Um, I I don't know. Um, My my daughter's 17 years old and she's always giving me a hard time because she thinks I'm more addicted to my phone than she is. So I think there's a new generation, you know, we're digital uh, immigrants. She's a digital native. And, you know, Mm. so she's less enamored of the bells and whistles of these technologies and there might be a whole new generation coming online of people and travelers who um you know having your phone in your pocket would be like having having travelers checks you remember travelers <laughs> checks you know big stacks of american express travelers checks that was just something you brought and or a paperback book you know or whatever it's just something you have
1: it's okay interesting
0: i'm hopeful that that's What happens?
1: Well, I think sometimes there can be sort of a class-based criticism, or certainly a generational, but also a class-based criticism, in that the people who criticized trains and how they were filling Europe with all of these unwashed people, they were the aristocratic class who was used to having these places to themselves. Uh, Middle-class Brits, you know, taking, suddenly being able to take a train that was affordable um, rankled the generations of travelers who'd come before them under the umbrella of aristocratic traditions like the Grand Tour. Um,
0: right, anyway. and uh, you know, I was just in Indonesia, and there was a, a budget airline there that had a big slogan written right across the fuselage of the plane. Now everyone can fly, is what it said, and that's true. And now everyone can take the train, and everyone can go everywhere. And um, I think that's a good thing. And if If travel remained like this elite... Sort of grand tour thing that only the aristocracy did I, I don't think that's good
1: well i think too using indonesia as, as an example i was in sumatra specifically um it was the first time i recall this happening a lot is that just local teenagers wanted to take a selfie of me with their phone right um and so i was of a generation where part of the ethics of photography is asked before you take a picture of local people because this is your privilege. Well, right. now the teenagers just thought it was weird that this big, sweaty, tall, white guy was in their town and they wanted to selfie with me. Right. And so suddenly, the this technology that I'm sort of complaining about even as I use it is not just affecting travelers who are young, but also local people who are young are navigating their lives through right. their technology. And now they have
0: a picture of the big, sweaty, foreign guy, yeah. um, which they wouldn't have had otherwise, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to a matter of presence, you know, are you present in a place uh, or not? And, and I, I, I think the, the technology is sort of paper thin. It's a very thin veneer. It's like, the, it's like airports. I mean, airports tend to all look the same these days. You really couldn't tell if you're in, you know, Dubai or Denver, except there's more shopping in Dubai, you know they 're big they 're sprawling there 's lots of retail, lots of overpriced restaurants um, and lounges and, and, and but Denver International Airport is not Denver Dubai International is kind of dubai though mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in that the, the city is city state is kind of one big airport in a way it 's very transitory but um, and, and likewise with technology um, you know, just because you see a Japanese person with their keitai denwa, their s- cell phone, um, they might use it in a very different way. Um, they're using it in their language. Um, and, you know, how, how deep does it go? I don't think, I, don't, I think the cultural differences trump uh, the technological sameness hmm. of the world.
1: I remember when I was in Korea, my, all my students had pagers. This was back slightly before cell phones became ubiquitous Um, and actually my girlfriend at the time bought me a pager because she was tired of not being able to get in touch with me and so I think some uh, and that was
0: the intrusive technology of the day
1: (coughs) yeah. yeah yeah and so I think like Korea is this very it's more culturally on individuals are more on the same page technology is a virtue and I think I know that they had broadband long before we did the United States
0: Right, and they're one of the most wired, or not the most wired country in the world, have the best broadband. But, and I was in Korea not that long ago, um, it's still (laughs) different. I mean, let's not confuse, you know, great broadband access, high-rises, you know, particularly countries like Korea and Japan are modern but not Western. So I I don't think we should be um, fooled by that.
1: But it almost feels like I could do it my own podcast episode on this topic, which is that when I came, I sort of was emptied from grunge-era America into um, uh era Korea, which that's the word for globalization. Korea was changing very quickly when right. I went there in the 90s. And so grunge had this authenticity discourse that you had to be, you, nothing, was, nothing was not authentic. It, the more authentic you were, the better you were at being a rock musician. And Korea was absorbing that as well as hip hop and 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 Michael Bolton. Like they were absorbing all this, these Western music at the same time. And right. a given ta- taxi driver would would turn on Nirvana or Michael Jackson or Neil Diamond just because it was Western music to him. It was non-Korean. Well, music. But now, of
0: course, they have K-pop, well, uh, which is an amalgam of all this, right? Well, well that's what I'm, that's yeah. what I'm
1: saying is that yeah. I think that they were, they were basically studying all of this, and now it's a K-pop is a very studied replication and a very performed version of all these pop styles from, from other parts of the
0: world. And yet somehow still uniquely Korean. Well,
1: I think in that it's so carefully presented. Like, it's not a, it's, it's not a question of authenticity. It's more a question of, are the dance moves perfect? You know, are, are, is everybody's uniform? Do they match and you know, do they have certain patterns that yield certain... Um, right,
0: it's not the most spontaneous art form, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's still Korean. And, and then, you know, you've got, um, you know, my, my daughter a couple of years ago was really into K-pop, you know, and I, I, I was driving her to, to middle school and um, and she was on her phone, speaking of phones, and it really just kind of pissed me off because we had like seven minutes <laughs> together each day to, to, to talk. And I'm like, Sonia, what do you get off your phone? Why are you like texting your friends? She's like, I'm not Dad. I'm like, well, what are you doing? She's like, she said, I'm learning Korean. And I looked at her phone, and sure enough, there was the Hangul alphabet, and she was teaching herself Korean. Why? Because she was into K-pop. And then we we took a father daughter trip to Seoul, and and went to the like K-pop museum, and saw Sai in concert, and um, and so yeah, I mean, it was a good experience.
1: I I love that as. Someone for whom Korea is close to his heart, you know, that was my first real international experience. I was being interviewed by another podcaster who did the same thing, had found K-pop through his daughter and flew from Canada to Atlanta to watch a K-pop concert as sort of a bonding experience, bonding travel experience with his daughter. So it's like there's a a generation of North American kids who want to learn Hangul. And that is exciting for me as someone who learned Hong Kong just so I could read street signs right. um, when, I, when I was in Korea in my 20s. And so, when I was saying that it's very, very produced, I wasn't meaning it as a criticism. I mean, there's a certain grunge part of me that would raise an eyebrow over produced music and dances. Right. Right. But there's something about Korean precision and pride in the meticulous presentation of K-pop. And, the, and the, even the studied Im, um, imitations of K-pop, even when I was there, they were dancing um, hip hop moves that were very, very um, correct. You know that they were dancing the hip hop move. When a punk band played in Korea, the mosh pit looked like a mosh pit until the song ended, and then people would bow to their to their to their um, seniors, right? And so, I guess this is sort of proving the point you were making that each country has, each culture has its own um, spin on the technologies and the arts that. That. Right.
0: And, you know, to say, okay, we're all using Apple phones or Samsung phones, you know, it's like saying in the 18th century, everyone's writing with fountain pens, as they were. Okay, but what are they writing ballads? Are they, you know, are they writing great plays? Are they writing pamphlets in the American Revolution? So, you know, you could sort of say the same thing about the smartphone. Um, I mean, the fountain pen does uh, affect what you can write and how you can write, and then the ballpoint pen changes things, and the typewriter changes things too. But, um, you know, on a typewriter you can be Hemingway or you can be an IRS agent writing a form that's gonna audit you. I don't know where that came from, but you know, that it can, it can be anything. So, likewise with smartphones, I think.
1: One thing I'm suddenly curious about is is the TV version
0: of Geography of Bliss that is yes. coming out. When
1: does that come out exactly?
0: Next year, uh, we don't know exactly when, but probably in the spring. Okay. And it'll be starring, not me, but Rain Wilson, uh, who played Dwight in The Office, uh-huh. and five episodes in the first season, and we'll see how it goes from there.
1: And so he's gonna be taking trips that more or less you took years ago. Yes, right?
0: with a couple more thrown in, but he's, he's he, like, he's going to Iceland and Thailand as I did. But he's also went to to Ghana, mm-hmm. um, and uh, <laughs> we sort of we ran into some trouble because of uh, Putin. Um, hmm. They were going to go to Finland, but that was too close to what's going on in Russia. And they were going to they were going to go to Moldova as I did, but that was too much in Putin's crosshairs. So they went to Bulgaria. So we we had to pivot. But yeah,
1: yeah. Actually, um, you. Famously, went to Moldova as the least hap- happy yes. country in the world. M- uh, my sister's been there. I actually interviewed her in DC for this podcast about her experience okay. in Moldova. She had a former student who was uh, from Moldova.
0: I mean, I did like the country. It was a <sighs> founded endearing that uh, came across. Um, likewise with Bulgaria, which is also an unhappy country, but uh, um, for many of the same reasons as Moldova, you yeah. know, former Eastern Bloc country, and that sort of thing.
1: I- I'm curious if. There, if the way the world has changed is going to affect the gap between the book and the TV show because that was more than 10 years ago wasn't it?
0: Um, it was like 15 years ago uh-huh. at least, yeah. Um, you know, it hasn't changed as much as you'd think. The places that were happy then are happy now for the most part and the places that were unhappy then are unhappy now. Um, happiness, is it's like a big ocean liner. It it doesn't it doesn't move very quickly. Um, it takes a long time for a happy place to become an unhappy place, and vice versa. Um, the one thing that can change that is war, a real war. But short of that, um, you know, like I I went to Iceland quite a few years ago. Um, very happy place, one of the top five in the world. And then they suffered a severe economic crisis, like the banking system practically collapsed. And I'm like, shoot, you know, <laughs> is it no longer happy? And I wrote to a friend who's a journalist there and I said, what's going on? Are you guys miserable now? And he said, no, um, it's been tough, but we're all in this together. The, 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 the characteristics of Icelanders that made them happy helped them weather the storm. So the, those, those I want not say skills, but those those happiness talents that these places have also help them weather the bad times. Um, so these rankings that that they publish every year in the World Happiness Report, where's the happiest, least happy country in the world? They don't they don't change that much. Um, and you know it, it take it takes a lot to move us. Even the pandemic did not put a big dent into global happiness, which sounds bizarre, but it's true.
1: Have you sort of become a happiness whisperer? Is it something you go back to a lot, something people ask
0: you about? They ask me about it. I mean, it's, I mean, it is a big, you know, it's not like I wrote a book about olive oil, which people have done. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) And I have to spend the rest of my life talking about olive oil. It is happiness. It's a big topic. Um, But I made a conscious effort not to become the happiness guy, not to write more geography of bliss, or geography of bliss and chicken soup, or things like that. Um, so I've tried to to move on, but um, you know it's a perennial topic, and it takes many forms. Um, so, and I've also this is going maybe getting off on a tangent, but I've brought in my definition of what happiness means, that, and, and so have the psychologists studying it. the The term of art right now is not happiness, but flourishing. The idea that uh, the English word happiness is just doesn't do justice to the good life, to a life that's meaningful and rich. And so flourishing, which can include some downsides, some rough spots, but a flourishing life is, is what we're aiming for, ideally.
1: Are you coaching Wayne Wilson in this? I mean, is, is he going to discover things that are completely opposite of what you discovered? How much of a similarity is there?
0: Well, he's a lot like me. He's just more famous and has more hair. Um, but he's, you know, he's he's roughly my age. Um, he's uh, he's wrestled with depression, as I have, and he's been open about that. In fact, in the show, he, as you'll see, he, he talks about it, you know? He had all this fame as, you know, this actor in the office and, and yet still was wrestling with his demons. Um, so we're similar in that way. We had a phone conversation and he was, really wanted to hear what I had to say. And I sent him a long memo saying, here's, here's how I get people to talk about happiness and here's wh- what to do. It's actually very difficult to get people to talk about how happy they are. It's very easy to get them to talk about how miserable they are. Like, mm. if I said, you know, if I said, Rolf, are you happy? And you said, no, then you know, I say, why? You would likely go on and just list this, this litany of, of grievances, the airing of your grievances of why you're unhappy. But if I ask you if you're happy and you say yes, and I ask why, a common response is I just am, I don't know, you know? Um, and it's not a question people often think about. Um, so I gave him some advice on that, but he, He's a pro and he's, um, and he's authentic. We were talking about authenticity. I mean, he's authentic on camera. He's, you know, just who he is. He's funny and smart and depressed and happy and all those things at the same time.
1: Did you talk with him about the flourishing definition?
0: Yeah, I did mention okay. that. Um, and, and that comes across in the show, I think, um, the idea that happiness is not enough. I mean, happiness as defined as pleasure. And that's like the smallest definition, that's like the least Mm. expansive definition. Just, you know, we're sitting here in a tea shop right now, we're having nice tea, this is pleasurable, but we're also having a nice conversation and maybe the conversation will get testy, I don't know, or it'll have some rough spots, but it's still, having the conversation is bigger than just enjoying the taste of the tea. Um, So, It's happiness with a capital H as a meaningful life that can have some grit in it, you know? Um, I think I never trust a person or a place without grit is my philosophy.
1: I was thinking as you, I was thinking of my own analogy of like a nightclub, you know, like sort of this ritualized fun, but a given individual in a nightclub might not be happy at all, you know? Even, right. though, even though years later, he, might, he or she might look back on that night as a happy moment, even though in, in real time it wasn't. So it feels like happiness is a slippery thing um, when it's right. th- seen through different lenses.
0: Well, the nightclub is pleasurable, but it's disconnected from meaning. Like, what's the meaning of a nightclub? It's to have fun, and fun has its place. But I always use the example of, you know, if you were to ask a single mother of three kids who's holding down two jobs if she's happy she'd probably say you're asking the wrong question. My life has meaning, I'm needed, um, I have moments of happiness, but I have great moments of unhappiness, but I'm living, you know, fulfilling obligations. Now that sounds too dry. Um, I'm, I'm there for people, you know, and it's that happiness as connection to others. And that was one of the big revelations of my book, Geography of Bliss, is that happiness is not personal. It's, it's hundred percent relational it's having conversations like this it's me hanging out with my daughter it's having a friendly exchange with the barista at your local coffee shop it's all these these human interactions um this is why solitary confinement is considered torture you know because we're we are social creatures um for better or worse
1: yeah, this is something I've talked about in the context of travel. You know, obviously, travel is my, my vagabonding is my uh, geography of bliss. It's what right. people like to talk about, and I always do. You get
0: tired of talking about
1: it? I really don't. Okay. Don't. And in fact, interviewers ask me that because I've had I've been promoting the new book, The Vagabond's Way, and I've had interviewers who seventy percent of the conversation is about my first book, Vagabonding. You know. Um, but that's fine, it's good to ha- I think you... The,
0: the, the other alternative is no one's talking about your first book, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and there's always something new to say. It's not static, right? So. Well,
1: and it's something that excites me, I, and I think, yeah. I think the reason people respond to it is that it was written with my whole heart.
0: Yes. And, um,
1: and so that part of me, I, I respect the 30-year-old kid now, seems like, who wrote it, because um, it, it did something that, re- that resonates with people. Um, But one thing that I I didn't understand as much then as I do now is is the way that travel is super important, but there's an extent to which you have to take it home and and take its lessons home and reconnect with your community as a member of your community that also has this conversation with other communities globally.
0: Yeah, and um, I I don't know if a life of uh, continual travel, continuous travel, is one I'd want. To live um, I, I like going away and I like coming home <laughs> um, I sometimes have re-entry issues I tend to get a little depressed when I get back from a long trip um, because it's just um, I'm not sure why exactly but it's it's uh, readjusting to life back home um, but um, just being on the road constantly and I know some people who do this I don't know how they do it um, I think that would get tired and old after a while and then because the whole point of travel I think is to change the rhythm of your life uh, but if you're traveling constantly you're in the travel rhythm hmm. and so for you that that person that total total nomad uh, what, what would change the rhythm of their life would be to sit in a cabin in I don't know Kansas and just sit still for a winter or a summer you know so well
1: I think it it, it it dovetails with ideas of happiness and community of happiness is that you if you're always moving then you can't really establish a relationship with the community
0: um, right and, and you run the risk of being just a consumer of experiences you're, you're consuming sites and meals and, and experiences in the place but you're not giving back yeah and, and that I thought a lot about that that that's but you can't, I mean, unless you do give back, you know, unless you, you know, I've got a friend, James, who's uh, been living in uh, Nepal for 17 years. I mean, he's always traveling, coming through Kathmandu. But, you know, he's started a nonprofit there helping get begging kids off the streets, built making quilts instead. It's called Quilts for Kids. It's a great thing. And he's definitely giving back. So it is possible.
1: I think those sorts of people put those places in conversation with their home community. I think sometimes two travelers can put this conversation in with their home community simply by saying, "Oh, actually, no, I've been to India. I've I've been to Egypt. I can say that people like this aren't this stereotype that you might think just yes. watching
0: news headlines." on a base level, that is the advantage of travel. Is you're then it's going to sound like a cliche, but you're an ambassador for India or Korea. Um, and you 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 know uh, see it clearly, um, but uh, we're talking about time before it's really the more time the more you're not just passing through at the speed of light, the more you're likely to contribute. I mean, if you're just on a whirlwind tour seven countries in seven days, you are a consumer, and that's okay. You're you know you're consuming the experience of the place, uh, but if you spend a week or a month there, and I realize not everyone can do that but you're, you're more likely to give back. And that doesn't mean starting a nonprofit like my friend James. It could be having in-depth conversation with local people um, or donating to a local charity that, you know, you realize is doing good work, something like that.
1: How long were you on the road this year? It was a
0: solid month, okay. this one trip. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's. It was a bit disconcerting because I hadn't traveled like that for quite a while. And um, it, it was great. Um, it was great in that... I, I have this philosophy, th- this idea about travel that it's... People say it's about expanding your life and expanding your horizons. I think it's actually at least partly about shrinking your life, you know? Hmm. Because you've got your, your, your luggage. You got... Uh, well, if you're a one-bag traveler, you've got one bag. If you're me, you're a three-bag traveler. You got three bags. But you're still... You don't have all your stuff from home, you know? And you don't have all... I don't have all my books. I don't have my hundreds of books. I've got 15 books, which I still travel with. But, you know, it's too many. But I've got the, my small library. I've got my stuff. Um, all of a sudden, your life It's like instant minimalism, you know? It's like Marie Kondo, you know, in a flash. and um, And you just fling yourself clear of the the messiness of your life and and that I find I can think clearly Um, but then it gets it gets a little tiring after a while um, a little it can become repetitive too Um, and you know you start to crave a home-cooked meal after a while you're ordering room service you're eating in restaurants you start to crave just you know making a burger at home or something where did
1: you stay on this one month trip? Because there's an, a memorable section from uh, Geography of Bliss where you're talking about a hotel. Right. Uh, and the way that the, the hotel- five stars. The five stars, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that it's, it's nice, because it's, it, but it insulates you. Um, and yes. So how do you do the hotel? They're like,
0: um, they're like, they're sort of like minimum security prisons with the maximum comfort, maximum comfort prisons. <laughs> um, and I know it's weird to call a five-star hotel a prison, But I think they're designed, especially in certain parts of the world, to create a world into themselves. So uh, I remember being in a five-star hotel in Doha, in Qatar, and like everything was there. You had four restaurants, five restaurants. You had a business center where you can conduct business. Locals who I wanted to interview would come to the hotel because that's where they would hang out. And we would meet in the lobby. Um, you could get married there. You could probably get divorced there too. There was a gym and a swimming pool and a little beach there and a gift shop. And so the message you sort of get is don't leave. There was also not exactly a moat around the hotel, but a very long driveway. So you can't, you can't just like walk out into the streets of Doha. And if you did, like the security or the bellhop would be, you know, Mr. Weiner, okay. can, I, can we get a car for you? You know, If I said, no, I just want to walk, they would be concerned. So it's, it's just sending these signals of, like, don't leave five-star land. And um, that's why I try to avoid them. I like comfort as much as the next person, but it's a matter of scale, just not on that scale.
1: Were you staying in guest houses? Or, or I mean,
0: I stayed in everything from a $20 a night guest house in New Delhi to a multi-hundred dollar boutique hotel in Bhutan for a couple nights at least. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a big believer in intermittent luxury. That, um, you know, if you can afford to fly business or first class all the time, you no longer enjoy it. If you're mainly in economy, but you occasionally get bumped up to first class, you're really gonna enjoy it more. (laughs) And you need to, you need to be uncomfortable to enjoy the comfort. Um, and I think that's something like wealthy people forget, <laughs> truly wealthy, or people who always travel in a certain style, is you just you don't appreciate it. And, um, and a $20 guest house in New Delhi can be pretty darn nice, you know, and feel like home. Um, so I wouldn't want to stay in a $20 hotel in Manhattan, but
1: yeah you have to, you know, having discomfort makes you appreciate comfort. Yes. One, one thing you wrote about um, is the concept of adventure travel, and I forget about the context, and I think it's from Geography of Bliss, that basically it used to be that adventures were something that you tried to avoid, and they certainly weren't something that you would pay for.
0: Right, it was thrust upon you. And, and as I like to point out, the words travel and travail share a common root. So it used to be travel was just difficult by definition. And you traveled if you were a crusader, you were in the army, you were a mercenary, you were a merchant, you know, trying to feed your family. As you probably know, the idea of traveling for pleasure, well, when did that come along? I guess the great tour of the 18th, 19th century, grand tour, that was it. Um, and then Thomas Cook, right, in the 19th century, and mass tourism. But You know, people did travel back then, you know, and there were great travelers travelers like Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta who covered more miles than we do, but it was difficult. It was often a one-way trip, you know.
1: Some of my favorite parts of Ibn Battuta's travels, too, are his bad times. Oh, like yeah. when he gets diarrhea so bad in Iraq that he, his friends have to put him on the camel, you know right, um, or he feels loneliness in I think in north Africa he's even that far he's even that far away from Morocco, which is at home right, and he just has this incredible homesickness because uh, he
0: couldn't just have a WhatsApp message to his family right. back home <laughs> right. yeah um, no the uh, having the bad things happen back then was 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 pretty easy um, i don't know. Um, so like I said, I'm working on this book on Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin said once that he said that he, he feels that he was born 100 years too soon. He wished he was born 100 years later because he wanted to see all the wondrous inventions that were, that were in. He could tell was in the works in, the, in his life span, almost the whole, 19, whole 18th century. And he could see what was coming in the 19th century. I feel like I was born 100 years uh, too late and I wish I was born a hundred years earlier. Um, as a traveler, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm a big fan of modern medicine and, and, and modern san- sanitation. But as a traveler, I often think like, like when would I want to be alive? I often think like the nineteen twenties, a hundred years ago, when you you could get around by steamship, not really by airplane yet. Um, you you could. Go to Asia and come back. Um, but when you went to Asia, you were really going someplace. And you were off the grid. There was much less of a grid. And um, yeah, so have you ever thought about that?
1: A lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, just because I've been with the new books, I've been studying a lot about the history of travel. Right. Um, and just so the rhetoric of travel, because there was a, there was a minister in England in, who in the 1830s said that, oh, you better go to Spain soon because it's about to be ruined, right? That was Spain in the 1830s. Um, and then... Right.
0: People have been saying that for a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, so, so I, I know that, that's why I know how long it took to get across the ocean uh, in the 1920s, right. that airplanes were very new. Um, and in fact, one of the chapters uh, where I use your adventure quote as an epigraph in the new book is about like basically you don't you would never pay for adventure that like we have sort of this constructed adventure. Right. Well, one of the people I write about in that chapter is Beryl Markham. Do you know Beryl Markham? Yeah. West with the Night. Right. She was a pilot. She was this incredibly she was a yes. difficult person and um, an amazing person. She right. was the first person to fly across the Atlantic uh, east to west. Right. Um, and, um, but she would take these hunters on safari, and it was, it, without setting out to insult them, that she, she just made them sound really absurd. Because they were paying her to fly them around with a safari guide, and oftentimes with, like, ethnic Kamba hunters who would help them hunt, but not for meat or food or protection, but just for trophy hunting. Uh, and it underscored the absurdity. So even, even 100 years ago, the, as, the, as the air quotes, adventure travel industry was taking form, It had some absurdity, um, I think, especially among people who helped make it happen, because it's like, well, this is kind of adventure travel, but it's not, because I'm helping you.
0: Yeah, it would sort of be like paying to go into a war zone, is how they would see it, I think. But you're going to pay to, like, take a trip to Ukraine now and, you know, take a tour of Kiev while it's being bombed by the Russians? Sounds crazy, and I think, likewise, hunting not for food but for thrills... (laughs) Must seem equally crazy to them. Um, it, I can't think. I think, well if it comes down to the idea of purpose, huh. you know, purposeful travel is a big thing with me. Um, I know we both run uh, writing workshops, and I, I do it in the Himalayas. Right, you do it in Paris, and and I find that just makes all the difference. So I just ran this trip to Bhutan with. We had sixteen. Uh, travelers, writers, people were various degrees of writing skill and interest in writing but we were in Bhutan not just to see Bhutan, but to work on our writing and it just, it gave us a sense of purpose (laughs) we're all here for a purpose, you know and when I'm working on a book and I'm traveling I'm traveling with a purpose Um, if you uh, are a doctor who goes to Honduras on your vacation and you go to help out at a local hospital for a week out of the two weeks you're there you're traveling with purpose um, a purpose other than pleasure you know and um, I think that's important it doesn't have to be something grand You know, we don't have to all be Albert Schweitzer but I, I think traveling with uh, a, a purpose and it can be even if you're a stamp collector you know it could be that you're you know, traveling to Liechtenstein, where I've been, by the way, nice. to, to get their, their stamps, you know, and add it to your collection. Um, and that's traveling with a purpose. And and you do see that now. You see the, the Smithsonian down the road here runs purposeful travel trips. and um, Yeah, I think that's hugely important.
1: We, when you were younger, were you a backpacker? Did you do... Um, Dirtbag travel? No,
0: nah, dirtbag, is that a phrase? Dirtbag travel? I, it's a,
1: I just, I use it a lot because yeah. compared to how I used to travel, I'm actually traveling pretty well. I used to just stay in the cheapest guest right. house in any given place. And in retrospect, I recognize it as dirtbag travel.
0: Um, I don't think I got as dirtbaggy as you did. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I took, you know, the trip to Europe with an ex-girlfriend. Well, girlfriend at the time, now ex-girlfriend. Um, you know, did that... Um, Stayed in one star, two star hotels. Um, um, I never, I I see, I have this feeling that, you know, I'm a big fan of the middle way (laughs) um, that the Buddhists talk about. Um, Like the extreme luxury doesn't work, as we talked about, the five Mm -hmm. star hotels. But I've met serious budget travelers who, uh, wait, how do I say this without this coming across the wrong way? who really should stay home and save some more money before they travel. Um, I mean, I was in Western India, in Western Rajasthan, there was a place called Jaisomir, and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we were going on a little camel trek, as one does, to the Thar Desert. And there were these two British guys who were with us, and they were just watching every rupee. Like, it was like, if you wanted a tent at night, it was like an extra 30 rupees, like 50 cents, and we paid it, but they were like, no, we'll sleep out in the open. But the, the guides took pity on them and gave them a tent. And They didn't tip the guides afterwards. They were just they were so fixated on watching every rupee that they weren't able to enjoy themselves. So wealth can get in the way of the travel experience. Extreme poverty can as well. Um, uh, there's something to be said for the middle way.
1: Yeah, I, I used to call that one downsmanship when I was with my dirt bag. Yeah. Um, compatriots, the reason I bring it up is. is it's just
0: as bad as one upmanship, isn't it? In its own way. Just as sort of competitive and elitist.
1: Right. And, and even more annoying because they're the person who, you know, is basically splitting your meal but not paying for it, sort of thing. Um, and I think. Right. You were talking about what gives purpose, like a writing class gives purpose to a given journey. I think sometimes dirtbag travel, the the hardship of dirtbag travel gives it purpose. I don't think I'll ever have a trip that will be meaningful in the same way as my early travels across Asia because I was doing it on the cheap, and it was always problem-solving to figure out how my small budget would get myself through the day. In retrospect, I couldn't. Do that it would be a stunt if i tried to go back to asia and spend the same amount of money in the same places
0: that's an interesting idea so the purpose was to solve the problem of you still wanted to do things though mm-hmm. and you wanted to see anchor Wat and see these places um
1: and i wanted to tip my guides but i i wanted my little pool of money to last a long time
0: no i can see where that's a uh, you know the one of the con- lessons i learned from researching my book the geography of genius is that creativity is uh, a reaction to constraints that um, creativity Mm -hmm. is a resourceful reaction to constraints that um, you know if you're given everything as I say that people in Persian Gulf countries are because they're washing oil you don't see a lot of creativity coming out there because they don't have constraints so it was actually uh, you involved engaged in a creative exercise with your dirtbag travel. Now I'm using the phrase, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and that you were trying to, to stretch the dollar, but you can get, take the constraints too far. Hmm. It's like the, the least happy countries in the world I know are the poorest ones in, in sub-Saharan Africa um, because they don't have basic needs. Then it gets interesting when you realize the next least happy are former Soviet nations, and they're actually pretty well off, certainly compared to sub-Saharan Africa. But Anyway, it gets complicated, but the, the point is um, some constraints are definitely helpful for happiness and creativity you can take it too far that's all I'm saying and then it becomes one downsmanship and and um, you know it becomes a kind of reverse snobbery oh you're staying in a three-star hotel you're not you're not experiencing the real India because you've got hot and cold running water, you know. No, not necessarily.
1: That phrase has been being uttered daily for 50 years. I think that there, there is a very specific subset of travel who look down their nose at street, three-star hotels. Right. Um, and maybe there always will be. But it, it's it's funny that you brought that up. Or actually, I brought it up in the context of, of purpose to a trip, like having a specific purpose. A mission, so to speak, and it, yeah. it just occurred to me as, as a dirtbag. My mission was getting a lot out of a little, and, and sort of having. No, to I, I it. can
0: see that. But the goal was to to be generous too, and and to tip your guide as much as you could, to you know, go fifty fifty on meals, yeah. um, and also just to you know to experience as much as you can, not to limit your. Range of experience. Um, that doesn't mean shopping in the Champs de l'Isle, but it means doing things. If you're not going to do and see and experience things, and why travel? You might stay home, save up your money, and then go.
1: And we're sitting in your adopted hometown. You're from Baltimore down yes. the road. This has been your home right. for a while. Um, you quote in um, I think Geography of Bliss. Uh, the geographer Yifu Tuan.
0: Yes, I love him.
1: Um, I quote him actually in my new he's, book as he's well. He's terrific. Yeah. In fact, is it topophilia? Does he write about topophilia? Yes,
0: I believe that's his phrase. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, which is another podcast uh, of yeah. its own. But you quote him as saying um, that landscape is personal and tribal history made visible and then you go on to talk about how sometimes the, the hardest changes in landscapes are not the ones that happen on the other side of the world when you go there 10 years apart but the ones that happen in your own hometown um, through the lens of childhood you say we don't like it when our hometown changes even right. in small ways it's unsettling mess with our hometown and you're messing with our past with who we are and nobody likes that right so um between dc and baltimore how have these places how's your relationship to both of those places changed as a traveler and some as someone who's not getting younger
0: wow that's an interesting question um i mean look i I, to be honest i wanted to escape baltimore i found it kind of parochial um, and i turned 18 and, and got out and it's a fine city if i wasn't from there i'd probably really appreciate it um but you know, is I think it's that—is it Auden or T.S. Eliot? I can't remember. One of the two poets who says, "You return home and you see it again for the first time." Elliot, it's yeah. Eliot, yes. And and you know that's how increasingly I feel about Baltimore. I go back and I see it for the first time. Um, and you know, I like to see, like, oh yeah, that's the that's the Howard Johnson's. We're in the parking lot. I had my first kiss. You know. That's the pizza place I used to work. And when the landscape is totally changed, you know, as it is in China today, um, and in other places, it's very disconcerting. Because, you know, you can't go back in time and relive that first kiss or your first job, but you can go back to the place. The place is the touchstone. Um, And, I don't know, it's, it's the same thing when I go to India. I I wanted to, I I realize it's very selfish. I want it to be like the India of 1993 when I first landed there as a young 20-something year old. And and when it changes, I, I have mixed feelings. I'm like, well, they want to advance. They, they want Starbucks, you know, and they, I guess they want Starbucks, I'm not so sure, but they, they want the goodies that we have. And, and it's kind of, I realize it's kind of selfish for me to say, no, you stay frozen in 1993 because I had these great images. You know, I had a friend, a, journal, a British friend who's a journalist, who said, oh, journalists love poverty, it's so colorful, you know, and we have to be careful not to over romanticize it. Um, but. You know, I think a lot about the relationship between travel and time. My, my philosophy is that all travel is time travel. That we, we travel either to reconnect with the past, right? See the past, our past, our nation's past, um, or to get a glimpse of the future. If like you went to Seoul today, you get a glimpse of the future. Or to change the rhythm of our lives. So I really think a lot of you can't really talk about travel without talking about time. That they're both you know, time and place that they're both intermingling. And I got way off your question, I realize, but, but to me, that's, that's what all this has to do It has to do with time. And in travel, you want to slow it down as much as possible. You want to, why do people go to Florence now, Wolf? I mean, it's all, the Uffizi is all online. You could all sit in your pajamas in Kansas and look at the great artwork of the Uffizi, but people want to go there. And they want to fight with the tourists, and they want to pay a lot for a hotel because they want to be in the friggin' place. And Washington is home, as much as any place is home now. Um, and I like places like this. This is a little shout out for teaism. A little. Uh, they have two or three of them in the D.C. area, and you get a nice tea, and it's not a Starbucks, and it's.
1: I'm having Earl Grey. What are you? I'm having,
0: having a jasmine green tea of some kind um, that is served in a pot and um, old school so yeah I mean and you feel like you're someplace
1: huh. what's and what's next uh, Benjamin Franklin
0: Benjamin Franklin um, not my typical book but uh, I'm calling it a book that is and is not about Benjamin Franklin and it turns out he was a great traveler He crossed the Atlantic eight times. Um, He was the best traveled of the Founding Fathers by far. He was the most international and in a way the most American at the same time. Sort of like you. Well traveled, but basically from Kansas, you know? (laughs) Or Boston and Philadelphia in his case. Um, And, uh, you know, he he lived in London for 15, 16 years. Most people don't know that. Lived in France for eight years. Traveled to the Netherlands, stopped in the island of Madeira for three days, was a big fan of travel writing, early travel logs. He read about, read a lot of travel logs. Um, so, yeah, he was a great traveler um, and at a time when, when it was difficult. He always thought like every transatlantic crossing might be his last.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Eric Weiner's books and the Geography of Bliss TV show, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.